0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and I have the honor of moderating our discussion here today. Um, We're talking a lot about budgets in the United States, especially in Washington these days, and that means a lot of talk about numbers and projections and how to balance the budget. But there are deeper issues than numbers, and that sometimes gets lost in all the discussion of trillion dollars and out years and fiscal years and so on. One of the things we talk about here at Cato a lot is an assessment of the size, scope, and power of the federal government, not just the size in terms of budgets or dollars, but the scope and power as well. What does the federal government encompass what are the powers entrusted to it? And that gets us into the, impo- the appropriate relationship between individuals, civil society, and the government. A few weeks ago, the evangelical group Sojourners uh, ran an ad saying, asking, what would Jesus cut in regard to the budget? A fair question. Uh, a blogger at the National Catholic Reporter talked about how the budget is a moral document. And so it is, wrote Roger Pilon in the Wall Street Journal last month, and it raises questions like, is a nation-state like a family? Is it moral to take from some to give to others? Do we believe in the idea, as Marx said, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs? Or do we believe, as Nozick said, or to paraphrase Nozick, from each as he chooses to each as he is chosen? Well, we have two distinguished scholars here today to explore those questions. Our first speaker will be Amitai Etzioni, who was a professor of sociology at Columbia University for 20 years, part of that time as chairman of the department. He left Columbia to serve as a senior advisor to the White House on domestic affairs, and then having gotten a taste of Washington, he couldn't leave. So he went over to George Washington University, where he was named the first university professor. Uh, he uh, is still there, and he is the director of the Institute for Communitarian Policy Studies. He was the president of the American Sociological Association in 94-95. In 1989, he was the founding president of the International Society for the Advancement of Socioeconomics, and about that time, he also founded the Communitarian Network, an organization dedicated to shoring up the moral, social, and political foundations of society. In the press, they often refer to him as the guru of the communitarian movement. He's the author of 24 books and was named among the top 100 American intellectuals, as measured by academic citations in Richard Posner's book on public intellectuals. This is hardly his first debate with a libertarian, Uh, Some years ago, he and I debated a few times at various uh, venues, and I also once saw him debate, I think, at GW with the legendary Roy Childs, so uh, he's had a lot of training for this. Um, Following... Professor Etzioni, uh, we'll hear from Roger Pilon, who is Vice President for Legal Affairs, B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies, and Founder and Director of the Cato Center for Constitutional Studies. Roger has written for every major national newspaper and for law reviews at Harvard, Georgetown, and Stanford, and has appeared on Nightline and 60 Minutes 2 and many, many cable shows. He holds a BA from Columbia University, where he says he once wrote an article critical of Professor Etzioni, uh, and a PhD from the University of Chicago and a JD from the George Washington University School of Law. Please welcome first Amitai Etzioni.
1: Well, thank you, David. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I do feel the continuing conversation. And I think our first one was in 1991. So it's it's quite about right when the communication uh, network uh, was uh, formed. Uh, I, I'm really particularly appreciative to, to be here uh, because I, I'm here really, I mean, aside from the importance of the issue, because of what Roger wrote in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, because uh, uh, as you already was hinted, I'm not a card-carrying libertarian. And, uh, and, Maybe not about to become one, uh, but uh, there's a lot in what Roger has written uh, which I very much share. And this is not just an empty compliment. I'll give you in a moment exactly the things we most profoundly agree about. And there is a certain importance for that because I believe from some experience that you get a good dialogue. When people are not completely diamond, they're kind of completely opposed to each other, like two ships passing at night. You know. uh, I think a Jesuit and a communist don't make a good conversation. You know. uh, Or when I, I saw somebody trying to talk to a mullah in, in Iran about uh, Kant, you know, it didn't get very far. Uh, but uh, we do share, first of all, the, the observation that what we're dealing with, as, as David just mentioned, are not simply question of efficiency and competition of the marketplace. We definitely are of obvious great importance, uh, especially when we're dealing with such huge amounts of money. But each of those things have a moral dimension. In effect, uh, just to push this point a little, uh, I wrote a little book called The Moral Dimension. And I tried to show that you're very hard put to come up with a decision of any significance which doesn't have a moral dimension. I mean, you can argue about uh, what color you put the path in the middle of the highway, you know, should be white or yellow, and that might be decided on completely technical grounds. But if you talk about pollution or climate or or relationships or marriages, any of those decisions, economic and otherwise, have a moral dimension, and it should be examined independently of that. And that's exactly what the two of us, I think, are going to do uh, today. Uh, second, uh, it's not an endless list of agreement, but I, I just one more, so we can go to the differences. Uh, I think it's very important to realize that when the state, when the state preempts the community, that's one reason the community is diminished. And, and as Roger pointed out very well, uh, just to give a quick example, which is not mine, uh, grief counseling these days in the United States is largely done. By the community, when somebody passes away, the family, the neighbors, friends come over, they bring food, they, they sit, they counsel, they comfort, they come back to help, uh, and that's the way we do grief counseling. Well, the government, uh, social workers, I can just see them come and say, this is unprofessional. It's not the way to do that. You know, they don't follow the four steps uh, outlined by some psychiatrists at Chicago. And so what we should do is hire professional governmental social workers to take care of griefing. Well, that's a hypothetical but the Germans do one better, they really did it. They pay people to be friends. So uh, if, if, when you, uh, uh, when a single woman comes out of the hospital with a new child, she already has one at home, it's hard for her to manage two, two children, one new one, on her own. So if the friends come over to help her, the Germans send her a check because they have to be compensated. Well, uh, that diminishes friendship. So uh, uh, in order to nurture the community, which in the, in the end is the most important foundation for the kind of individual I think we all cherish, we uh, need to be careful not to preempt it, not to remove uh, uh, missions from it by kind of nationalizing them. So that's uh, I think the things we agree on. What I need to do from here on is to point out that one thing Roger uh, who who want to rely on our charity to each other, rather than on government-imposed uh, redistribution of assets. He didn't quite go all the way in that, you know, or pay it as a limit, you know, and say, well, therefore, we should close down Medicare. And so, and neither does Paul Ryan. So uh, we're talking about still, first of all, all the millions who are now on Medicare, for at least, you know, 20, 30, 40 years till all they die off, quite oodles of federal money. And then by Paul Ryan, we would extend it to, to those who are 55 or older, which adds another little package, and those who are younger are going to give them government voucher, so the gov- which is also public money, and so uh, uh, we are not really talking about to the degree we're talking about any political reality, by, by any imagination, even to the right of Paul Ryan, about a world in which we no longer have to talk about the criteria by which we allocate public funds to non-security purposes, to health care for elderly. So all this philosophy does not preempt the issue by, a long, by a, a long shot. So that's where I come in and I ask, what should be the criteria for which we allocate the public funds? Now, reducing deficit is fine. That it should be certainly a criteria. Uh, Nurt- nurturing competition, fine. But there, there remains then still all the other allocative criteria. One of the things we here we is should we should cut benefits. And my main argument is morally. You're bound to first cut those things which are I think causing harm or have no demonstrable benefit before you cut anything, however expensive, which has redeemable consequences. So before you take anybody's bone marrow, or kidney dialysis, or or, or whatever has proven beneficial consequence, however expensive, I think here's the first things you have to look at first. First, fraud and abuse. Now, that, that most people. You're a very polite audience. Most people cringe at that point. Why? Because that's the easy excuse. Uh, why should we go and cut benefits? Anybody? We can take it from the crooks, you know. Uh, no, I'm not talking about an easy out. I'm saying, as uh, we've seen recently on 60 Minutes, that uh, milking Medicare has become now an industry larger than the illicit drug. Uh, it, that is the new specialization in Florida. Uh, Because it's too easy to to commit fraud against Medicare. So before we cut anybody's benefit, I want us to go and look at at the way that works and see if in any easy ways we can save trillions out of that pocket. One quick example. What happened is that people open a little shop in a storefront in South Florida. They buy from some crook a patient list, they bill Medicare. Uh, somebody written, I don't know who, that Medicare cannot wait to pay. It has to pay, a bill. I guess, to keep small businesses from suffering within 15 to 30 days. Medicare usually cannot check on these things sufficiently in that period because somebody else cut this auditing stuff. And so uh, when after 30, 40 days, they change the name of the shop, move next door, buy a new list, and they add it again. So before we take anybody's bone marrow transplant, I want us to go and see if we can at least somewhat tighten that's those standards, those mechanisms, the auditing, as long as we distribute federal funds at all. Next, I want you to go to uh, uh, paperwork and administrative costs. I mean, it's common knowledge that we pay roughly again. We can argue about the figures. thirty? Or 28 or, or 27.6, but we roughly spend one third of our healthcare costs on, on administrative and bureaucratic costs compared to much lower numbers in, in any other civilized country. Now it's true there are some reasons for that, and we I give much more time. We could go and analyze them. And I'm not saying that if you can cut it to Canada's level. That's outrageous. They're socialists, uh 2% from study? Here's a very simple, just one quick example so we can de- move on to the other two factors. We pay f- for, e- we examine every procedure, every test. Means that those of you are physicians, or a physician, your family, or nurses, I do Yeah, know. You know the, every item has to be billed. And then the insurance company or medic has to check six in 18 steps for every prescription. All you have to do is move to capitation. It means you give the doctor a fixed amount, and that's what you have for that patient. Actually, that's not far from the Ryan proposal. And you don't have to send in every test. You decide which test to pay for. That's all you're gonna get. Moving from checking procedure by procedure to computation would eliminate huge amounts of paperwork and accounting and auditing without harming anybody. I think we need to go there before we deny anybody kidney dialysis. Then there are medical interventions which are causing harm by the American Academy of Medicine. I'm sorry, Academy of Sciences. We lose roughly 98,000 people a year death, in addition to other 100,000 of injuries, because of inappropriate treatments. Same thing, I'm not saying, I wish we could, that we could eliminate those, or even cut them by half. But you know what we need to do? If you could get the doctors to wash their hands, that is not, actually now they make it very easy, they no longer have to go to the sink. Uh, They have another little thing at the door, so they have to go kind of hold their hands up. But uh, that probably reduced the killing by two and a half percent. And a very simple procedure. I'm sorry, I I really want to Stress that point by giving another very concrete example to show that I'm not talking about something very fancy. One of the problems we have in anesthesia is that uh, one pipeline brings air to the lungs of the patient, and the other pipeline brings the, the anesthesia, which keeps the patient asleep. But times happens, rarely, but it does. The pipes get reversed, so uh, anesthesia is piped into one line and they and the other causing fatalities. So somebody suggested that we should make the nodule in such a way. We couldn't do that, you know. I mean, it doesn't require uh, enormous engineer ingenuity. It hasn't been done yet. So I, I, if you want, if you are uh, doing a Q&A, I can, I don't think I amuse you, but uh, shock you by telling you how many fairly elementary things we could do uh, to reduce death caused by treatment. And finally, uh, good timing. Uh, finally, finally, yeah. Uh, we have, according to the Iran Corporation, uh, 20% of the intervention are not harmful but useless. So, to save time, all I'm going to argue is uh, again, we can cut the moral, we cannot eliminate. The evidence issues are very, very difficult. But if you could just reduce some, those interventions which have no redeeming merit. I think we would save a bundle. So, in short, my argument is saying like this morally, first cut useless paperwork, uh, unnecessary things which are useless or harmful before you take anybody away which is beneficial. Now, and that's my last point. Uh, I, Roger points out, and I agree, and it's very much, I think, in the, in the air here competition can help. So if instead of relying on the government, we would have various health providers, and various health insurance compete with each other, uh, they, in order to get a lower premium or better service, uh, by nature, would be pushed to take care of all these things I argued about, and we wouldn't have to have committees and panels uh, uh, do that. And the k I took your credit, uh, and I, I appreciate that, uh, I did a study of why is there so little competition in this area? And it's found a, a large variety of reasons. And I hope, as you continue to contribute to this uh, subject, that you will add to the consideration, uh, if you wish, there's an AMA report which p- points out, in effect, health insurance and uh, is one of the most monopolistic industries we have in any area of our economy. So if you want to have competition, I hope you continue telling us why is there so little competition in that sector, and that may lead you to find out that one of the major reasons are the health insurers themselves. Uh, That's what my colleagues at Chicago started calling regulatory capture. Uh, and that is that the industry which is supposed to be regulated captures those who regulate and writes a regulation or otherwise influences the outcome. So uh, morally, if competition is to thrive, we, we have to uncover what's holding it back. There are many factors, and m- many of them are already listed. I hope you add to it the harm done by the industry itself.
0: Thank you, Professor.
1: Now, Roger Pilon.
2: Thank you, David. Um, And thank you for joining us here this afternoon. Our subject is the moral implications of deficits, debt, and the budget battles ahead. Um, My thesis, in a nutshell, is that we're in this fiscal mess Uh, because we've abandoned our principles as a nation, our moral principles, and we won't get out of it until we get back to those principles. Let's start, however, with a couple of numbers just to give some perspective to the moral issues. It's easy to get lost in these numbers, as David uh, said, and they're often just estimates, but uh, it'll help to note that in the uh, current uh, $3.7 trillion federal budget, nearly $1.6 trillion of that is deficit spending, meaning the government has to borrow the money to pay for the good and services that we're demanding. Uh, if things don't change uh, that gets only worse as we go forward, especially as the country ages and demand for entitlements increases. As for debt, we're looking at the moment at 14 point three six million or trillion dollars also projected to increase substantially in the years ahead raising the debt ceiling is the next battle before Congress of course, Um, It's uh, noteworthy that the last Congress, um, uh, uh, even as they struggled to draft the uh, budget for 2012 uh, and on the budget, it's noteworthy that the last Congress, despite being overwhelmingly Democratic, was unable to pass a single appropriations bill. It took seven continuing appropriations before the current Congress, just last month, finally passed a budget for fiscal year 2011, halfway through the year. So what are some of the moral implications of that reality, which is our subject today, of course? Well, first, the huge deficits tell us that we're living well beyond our means. Spending far more than we're taking in, the implication is simple irresponsibility. That means, second, that year in and year out, we're consuming what we're unwilling to pay for, until something down the, sometime down the road. But that means uh, that we're shifting the costs of our appetites onto our children and grandchildren. The moral implications of that, of course, are staggering. But it also means, third, that we've made intergenerational promises that that are unsustainable, promises we can't keep. The Congressional Budget Office projects... Uh, for for example, that Congress would have to double all federal income tax rates to keep Medicare and other entitlements on their current path. That would cripple the economy and alone would end Medicare as we know it, and much else besides. So those who criticize Paul Ryan and the House Republicans for proposing to end Medicare as we know it uh, need to wake up. Uh, Medicare as we know it is going to end one way or another. Either we end it, or those who'll no longer lend us money will end it. That's the hard reality as the Washington Post noted only this morning editorially. And fourth, a nation in such a parlous economic state is no longer in a condition to be able to defend itself, which is yet another of the moral implications of the unsustainable course that we're on. But more immediate uh, than the moral implications of the deficits and debt are those of the ongoing budget battles Concerning those, it's customary, of course, to distinguish discretionary from non-discretionary spending, and until very recently, to say that non-discretionary spending was off the table. But here, too, hard reality has changed that, at least among people willing to face it. That's what the Tea Party and the 2010 elections were all about. And it isn't simply a question of whether it would be immoral to cut social and not defense spending, as many on the left have framed it, or whether we should more heavily tax the rich than we already do. More deeply, it's a question about our principles as a nation. Professor Etzioni, the godfather of communitarianism, frames the question in the collective voice, what should we do? How should we tax ourselves and allocate our resources? The implication being, as Presidents Clinton and Obama both put it expressly, that quote, we're all in this together. Well, that's just the premise I want to challenge. We're not all in this together. We're a nation of individuals, each with his own interests and dreams. In a word, we're free, not bound to each other as if we were a family. To be sure, we do have a communitarian side. That's why we can call ourselves a nation. But if that's the only or the dominant approach we take to the matters before us, we're ignoring the other side, our basic character, the roots of which are in our founding documents. And so the issue ultimately is individualism versus collectivism, which brings me to the thesis I want simply to sketch, that we're in a parlous economic situation because we've ignored our basic moral principles as a nation, principles that stem not simply from the natural law, but more precisely from the natural rights tradition as reflected in the English common law and in the individualism that emerged from the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment, all of which was captured by Locke in his second treatise and was summarized by Jefferson in the Declaration. As the Declaration makes clear, we all have inalienable rights to pursue happiness as we think best, provided we respect the equal rights of others to do the same. We can do that alone as individuals, or we can pursue happiness with others in voluntary association. But that's the key point, not through forced, but through voluntary association. In fact, Jefferson makes that clear when he turns to government after having first set out the moral order. He writes that to secure the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Consent is the bedrock principle of association, but there, alas, is the political rub, and it's important to recognize it. Government is not like private voluntary associations. As George Washington put it, government is not reason, it is not eloquence, it is force. It's a forced association, and here's why. Democracy starts with the individual right of self-rule, each of us the right to rule himself. But how do you legitimately go from self-rule to collective rule? You can do that, of course, through unanimity. But rarely, if ever, in the political context, do you get unanimity. What you get is majority preference. But of course, majority preference is not consent, at least with those who are in the minority. And the classical liberals understood that, which is why they never called for a single-step rule of consent, but rather for the social contract, which is a two-step rule of consent. Each of us agrees in the original position, unanimously, to be bound thereafter by the majority. The only problem with that theory, of course, is that most of us were not there in the original position, those who didn't come from abroad and consented when they agreed to become citizens. And so... The democratic theorist, the small d democratic theorist, resorts to tacit consent. You stay, therefore you're bound. But the problem with that argument is that it puts the ch- minority to a choice between two of its entitlements. It's right to stay where it is, and it's right not to be bound by the majority, precisely what the majority must uh, must approve on pain of circularity. And so what you come down to at the end is that there is this air of illegitimacy that surrounds government. Government as such. It is indeed a forced association. And so to help sort things out, you can think of government as on a continuum. I'm going to do this from left to right in the Western tradition, that's the way we think. Down here at one end, you have anarchy. Down here at the other end, you have totalitarianism. In anarchy or state of nature, a state of affairs without government, you have nothing but uh, the liberty of the individual, such as it may be. Once you move out of the state of nature and into the state of civil society, and you start moving up this continuum, you start getting more and more government involved. First with law enforcement, then national security, then education, then retirement security, then medical care, and then housing, and food, clothing, shelter, and so on. Pretty much you're up here to North Korea in totalitarianism, where every decision is made by and through government. And so the question becomes, is there some principle by which you can order this step along, the, these steps along that continuum? And it turns out there is. It's the classic theory of rights. Fortunately, we have that is founded in the common law for the most part and in Locke. And you start in state of nature theory where you'd have no government, and what the problem is is to figure out what rights and obligations we have vis-a-vis each other in that state of nature. And it turns out that the theory of rights shows that you have two fundamental rights, namely property and contract. Property broadly understood, as Locke put it, is lives, liberties, and estates. Your property in your life, your property in the liberty you have, and the property that you acquire in the world, such that a right violation is the taking, something that belongs free and clear to another. And then, of course, we don't live in splendid isolation on Black Acre or White Acre in the state of nature. We come together, and the second way we come together, or the the, the second great right, is through contract, whereby we can, uh, we associate with each other in various ways that will lead ultimately to the creation of civil society or civilization as we can think of it. Now, there are three basic rules which apply in this state of affairs, before you turn to government. And I'll give them to you very simply. They're so simple that you can understand them even on the playground. Rule one, don't take what belongs to somebody else. That's the whole world of property. Rule two, keep your promises. That's the whole world of contract. And rule three, if you fail in one or two, give back what you've wrongly taken or wrongly withheld. That's the whole world of remedies, and that's what we create government to do. Now, there is a fourth rule, but it's optional. It's voluntary. It's called do some good as you work your way through life. Be a good Samaritan. But notice, the good Samaritan is good only because he acts voluntarily, not through force of law. In other words, you are, perfectly, are at perfect liberty to be a good Samaritan or not. That's entirely up to you, and that's why it's an optional rule. And so those are the four basic rules that you can derive from the theory of rights to sort out the vast array of human relationships, no matter how complex they may subsequently be. All right, now when we do decide to come out of the state of nature and into the state of civil society, it turns out there are reasons why we do so. As Locke put it, there are inconveniences in the state of nature. We may disagree about what our rights are and our obligations are. We may disagree about what rights we have if they're violated. And indeed, Locke, uh, Hobbes put it uh, very poignantly, life in the state of nature is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And so when we come out of the state of nature for these prudential reasons, it turns out that there are three basic powers of government that you can think of when you think of government analytically. The first power is the police power. The power that each of us has in the state of nature, which Locke called the executive power, to secure his rights. That's the main power that we yield up in the original position to government to exercise on our behalf. And we use it to secure our rights, both with respect to our neighbors and with respect to foreigners who may uh, threaten us from abroad. And it's also used to create public goods, but you have to understand the notion of public goods in a strict sense. Those are goods that, as the economists define them, uh, in, in, are entailed by non-rivalrous consumption and non-excludability. Goods such as national defense or clean air. The idea is that uh, non-rivalrous consumption is a good uh, by one individual uh, does not reduce the availability of that good for any other individual, and non-excludability—that that you can uh, no one can effectively exclude another from using them. The second great power is the eminent domain power, which is the power to, uh, to uh, take someone's property provided you pay him just compensation and it's for a public use. This is much more difficult to justify. It is justified in our constitutional order, first of all, because we agreed to it in the original position. The Fifth Amendment recognizes by implication the power of eminent domain. And secondly, it is a power that when exercised properly is Pareto superior, as uh, economists would put it. At least one person is made better off, namely the public as is evidenced by its willingness to pay and nobody is made worse off uh, the individual from whom the property is taken provided he receives compensation that leaves him indifferent as to whether he gets the compensation or keeps the property which of course is rarely the case in today's world. And so the eminent domain power is the second great power and it is used to prevent the problem of the holdout in the state of nature uh, who the, the person who simply will not relinquish his property and therefore can extract monopoly rents accordingly. And the third great power is, of course, the redistributive power, literally the power to take from A and give to B, or the regulatory use of that power, not regulation to secure rights through through the police power, or regulation to more clearly define rights under the uh, theory of rights, which is perfectly legitimate, but rather the regulatory power which is used to prohibit Uh, A, from doing what otherwise he would have a right to do or require him to do what he would otherwise have a right not to do for the benefit of B. Unfortunately, this third uh, redistributive power is the one that defines most of what government does today. And that means that most of what the federal, state, and local governments do today is illegitimate because there is no justification for this ultimate or, or redistributive power, whether it be in the straightforward form or in the redistributive form. So now how did we get to this state of affairs where most of government today is illegitimate as defined by our founding well, of course, the answer is in the progressive era, the social engineering schemes that emerged from that basically at the state level during the early decades of the 20th century and then at the federal level during the New Deal period of the Roosevelt administration. And that has led to the ubiquitous leviathan that we have, federal, state, and local today. And it is often defined by the economists in the public choice school. Uh, the idea of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs create perverse incentives. Uh, we look increasingly to government to get ours, because if we don't, someone else will. And together with the something-for-nothing that mi- mindset that invariably surrounds the scramble for government goods and services, we've abandoned the idea of constant constitutionally limited government in favor of government as provider of all things good, from retirement security to medical care and on and on, leading ultimately to a Hobbesian war of all against all. And we're seeing it today. Fortunately, at the state level, there's a less costly option uh, than at the federal level. People vote with their feet. We're seeing this in California, Illinois, New York, uh, Rhode Island. Just recently a study came out to show to explain their loss of population. and you look at a state like California and what you see is the taxpayers are leaving, and the tax takers are coming in, and that, of course, creates a death spiral. But as I said, fortunately, at the state level, the people can, uh, can leave, can vote with their feet. You can do so at the federal level, but it's much more costly. Corporations, of course, do it at the federal level when they move their facilities to other countries where the uh, taxation rates are far lower. We have the highest taxes in the, in the world, uh, corporate taxes in America. Now, we didn't get to this overnight, and because we and and because uh, we do have obligations, we cannot end this state of affairs overnight either. That's why Paul Ryan's plan to reform Medicare doesn't affect anyone now on uh, age 55 and over. Nor do proposals to reframe reform Social Security of the kind that Jose Pinera here at the Cato Institute has proposed and in and helped institute in many countries around the world today, including in his own China, uh, Chile rather, which uh, recently celebrated 30 years of their uh, privatized retirement system. And in that system, interestingly, over the last three decades, these accounts have averaged annual returns of 9.23% above inflation. By contrast, US Social Security pays a 1% to 2% theoretical return, and even less for new workers. And so um, we can make these corrections now, as I said earlier, or we can, and, and do so at considerable pain, or we can make them later at much greater pain, and that's the choice that we have before us. Thank you.
0: All right, thank you, Roger. We've had two perspectives presented here. I'm not sure they've directly engaged each other, so now I'm going to ask the two speakers to take a moment to respond to the original presentation. I
1: Uh, Uh, Well, I I owe Roger uh, the most succinct and complete rendering of the libertarian theory. And uh, in effect, uh, the moment this is over, I'm going to ask for a copy, because uh, I I never had it all put together so well and carefully and succinctly. Uh, So he gave at least one sentence to the issue I live with, and that is what we're going to do tomorrow with uh, costs which spiral out of control. and if we have to cut, which we completely agree on, is uh, where are we going to cut. And so uh, as David pointed out, uh, we don't really ha- we have yet to start the conversation. So I'm not going to repeat uh, everything I said earlier, why we should cut my way rather than the way he didn't mention. Uh, uh, but uh, let me then, I guess, go to uh, libertarian theory. Uh, the, the communitarian contribution, which in effect was put best by, by Jonathan Rauch when he talked about what he called soft communitarianism, is a recognition, as it's been kind of implied, but not quite laid out, that we really have at least three realms we exist in. One uh, is this coercive government realm, which has all the difficulties and Uh, Roger mentioned, and the individual freestanding, acting on her own, governing herself, unrelated, uh, who occasionally may uh, have a little cemetery moment, and then the rich fabric of families, and place of worship, and voluntary association, the, the Tocqueville World, in which we have relationships, uh, which Roger referred to in his editorial. And the question there is the relationship between these three realms, not two, the three realms. And the most important thing I want to point to, as long as we're in libertarian theory, or my take on it, that the individual which the libertarian cherish and see exists only in communities. Uh, if you take people and really isolate them and set them to act out on their own, Uh, They become masses, subject to demagogues. Uh, uh, The Manhattan Project shows they have a very high level of mental illness. Uh, When you isolate them in prisons, they simply come apart. People need each other, not in an exchange relationship, but in a bonding relationship, not only for the shared purposes of uh, bringing up children and, and the public goods and such for their own psychological integration. The way the people stand up to tyranny is not each one alone, but by drawing and relying on each other. Uh, and when you look now at the so called Arab Spring, though, frankly, is, I grew up in the Middle East. The springs in the Middle East are awfully short and they're followed by very hot summers. And then comes the fall. Uh, but uh, that, that, forgive me for this digression. Uh, but again, we see a large number of people joining to bring about uh, uh, social change. So what we need to worry about here is not only uh, about uh, what nurtures liberty and what limits government, but also what will nurture uh, these uh, bonds of affinity, which, as we heard for a moment, are not limited to the immediate community, but also uh, uh, the, the sense of uh, nation we have, which also has this uh, communal dimension. So as long as we're not talking about what we're going to do in the next week, next month, next year, which are the allocative question, which already made my case, and I haven't yet been challenged, uh, as long as we want to talk about th- political theory, uh, please uh, I'll allow to c- close here on Senator Bradley's uh, very helpful image. Uh, he said that society is like a three-legged stool and two legs are too long and one is too short. And so the two legs which are too long, there's too much government uh, and t- too much individualism in that particular sense of people who, who don't regard each other and maximize their selfishness. And the third leg uh, in which we act as as neighbors, as friends, as community members, Uh, as members of voluntary association and as citizens uh, is uh, too short.
0: Roger? Yes.
2: Um, In the uh, introduction to uh, the um, forum today, to the debate, uh, we linked to both my Wall Street Journal piece and Amitai's uh, piece in dissent, called a moral assessment of the attack on social safety nets, from which he drew uh, in his opening remarks today. I will address just a few of those uh, uh, in the um, few minutes that I have here to respond. Uh, in the written form, uh, he uh, spoke about essentially uh, uh, we don't have to cut because we can find uh, all kinds of revenues in the programs that we already have, and we can increase revenue through tax increases of various kinds, and he ticked off a good number of those. But the problem is that uh, his numbers don't add up to nearly the amount needed to cover the liabilities the federal government has for all of its entitlement programs into the long-term future. Um, uh, His proposed tax increases and reforms add up to somewhere around 1.3 trillion, assuming they all come through, per year in additional revenue um, which would be enough to balance the budget this year, but not in coming years. He says, for example, the cap and trade system was would raise $1.9 trillion between 2012 and 2019. Well, that's the high end of the estimate that came from the Obama White House, which could range from 1.3 to 1.9 trillion. And let's remember, cap and trade couldn't even make it through the Democratic Congress in the last Congress, and so it's not likely it's gonna make it through this time either. Um he um, he then said that uh, we could have a carbon emissions tax, which would generate 50 billion per year. But of course, that tax would increase the price of gasoline. He also said a value-added tax of five percent would add 260 billion. But that, of course, is a very regressive tax. What is more? Uh, the VAT has uh, reduced uh, hasn't reduced the debt level at all in Europe, as our own Dan Mitchell has shown um, through many studies of his. Uh, almost every country that has a VAT in Europe has a huge debt. Um, he also speaks of increasing the uh, or uh, the estate tax for people of with estates of a million or more. Um, <clears throat> the um, of course people can transfer their wealth out of the country or decide not to save or invest. Or they can go to, in the state level, go to states like Florida where there is no uh, estate tax, and it's not just simply because of the weather that people uh, who have assets are moving to Florida. Um, Besides that, it's a very small proportion, one to 2% that we get through the estate tax. Um, And it can easily affect middle-class people, too. There was a very good letter in this morning's Wall Street Journal about that. Why do we treat a person who saved a million dollars over a a lifetime of work differently than, say, a retired Connecticut teacher who gets $60,000 of pension over the next 20 years and, therefore, a million, too? They're in an equivalent position when you look at it that way, and yet we treat one one way and another another way. Uh, Amitai also speaks of uh, raising the tax income bracket, but as Alan Reynolds here at Cato has argued repeatedly, uh, the ratio of income tax revenues to GDP, regardless of what the tax rates are, has stayed steady around 8%. So that's a, 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 a solution that uh, will not produce uh, any remedy at all. Um And then uh, he speaks of uh, tax reform loopholes. Well, of course, the Ryan plan also speaks of that. That is something that we can certainly agree upon. Among the other things Amite has proposed is standardization forms for insurance companies, which would presumably save $7 billion. $7 billion is a drop in the bucket, given the figures that we're talking about here. Uh, He's spoken about a ban on advertising for prescription drugs, which would generate $2.6 billion. Uh, again, we don't uh, ban free speech in this country. Um, talked about the administrative cuts uh, costs. Well, nobody has come up with a clear definition of what the administrative costs are. Uh, and at least uh, in one study uh, by Robert Book over at Heritage, on a per-person basis, Medicare actually has greater administrative costs than private insurance does. Uh, there's no consistent definition, however, of what administrative costs are since they vary with plan implementation. And finally, the elimination of fraud and abuse is a um, will-o'-the-wisp that people have been pursuing for many years. Actually, what you really want is an optimal amount of fraud and abuse. An amount of fraud and abuse that uh, does not cost you any uh, more than the uh, extra cost of going after that and reducing it such that it costs you more to reduce it than you're getting in return. So what we really do need is an optimal level of fraud and abuse. That's enough for now.
0: All right, let's open this up to questions and bore in on our two speakers and the issue uh, under discussion here. Please wait for a microphone to get to you, and we can start right there.
3: Steve and it seems that I heard two wholly separate discussions. The first is numbers and the second, morality. And they don't necessarily coincide. People of good faith on libertarian or um, communitarian can agree or disagree on the specific financial consequences of various policy changes. But with Roger's talk, I was disturbed by this constant reference of illegitimacy. I felt I was listening to John C. Calhoun and Rita Vivus, and the argument that if once you that the illegitimacy argument was exactly what the founding fathers raised in the declaration, when they viewed it essential to abandon the British Empire and strike off on their own. And that to me is where the logical conclusion of this we, Roger posited an ideal constitution which presumably existed at some point in American history, even though there are those who say that even with John Marshall, the illegitimacy started creeping in. So I I find this this argument disturbing that there once was a Garden of Eden until a snake of some nature came along, whether the snake is John Marshall, the nasty progressives, or demonic FDR. So I'd like to hear whether, in fact, there was this pure Garden of the constitutional Garden of Eden and who um, offered the, uh, the apple to Eve.
2: Okay, well, you have to distinguish the ideal constitution, and we have uh, relatively come relatively close to that. But that's altogether different than life under that constitution. There's never been a golden age of liberty in this country. At different times, different liberties have been protected, Uh, and uh, for example, economic liberty was once better protected than it is today. Personal liberty is better protected today than it used to be, and you can go refine that in any number of ways and come up with examples of that. The reason I focus on illegitimacy is because we are a nation that is founded on a notion of illegitimacy and so we'd better pay attention to it or we cease to be the nation that we purport to be. After all, we speak of American exceptionalism and by that we mean a nation of nations, e pluribus unum, from many, one. And the idea is that people come from all over the world voluntarily to this country, not because it is defined by religion or uh, culture or any of the other narrower uh, uh, definitions that describe uh, countries, various countries around the world, but because there are certain fundamental moral principles that define us. And so we need to pay attention to that. And among those is the idea that individuals have a right to... Uh, be free and to become all that they are capable of being and that of course is what is undermined when you collectivize so much of life, when you require that people give ever more of their sum and substance to public entities to be then redistributed according to some plan that is worked out here in Washington or in Albany, Sacramento or wherever the case may be. In that way, we're all in this together And I submit that that is the premise that I rejected. We are all in this together with some things. And you look at the Constitution, and you will see 18 enumerated powers that are um, are delegated to the Congress to exercise on our behalf. They didn't get entirely right. They provided for a post office, for example, which they didn't need to do. But... Apart from that and a few other peccadilloes, they basically got it right. Unfortunately, we have abandoned that vision, and today those powers have been turned into essentially an open sesame. All
0: right, I'm going to ask a couple of questions myself. Amitai, the federal budget has doubled in the 10 years of the Bush and Obama administration's Are we twice as moral a society, twice as moral a government as we were ten years ago? And is there any limit on this increasing budget?
1: Um, First, I I want to point out that uh, luckily I know Roger for many, many years as a man of impeccable integrity. And I know he wouldn't have dreamed to set it up in such a way that I don't have a chance to answer his answer. Go ahead. So, uh, but I'll just take a minute to respond to what he said in the second round. And so, uh, uh, one criteria he employed was that m- some of my solutions are politically not practical, like uh, the Congress is not going to pass carbon tax, and he's right. Neither is going to pass the Ryan plan. So if we are going to go by political... Uh, not yet. Uh, uh, we will be, are we recording this session? And, and so uh, I'll take bets after this, uh, uh, okay. And we can reduce the deficit. Uh, with, uh, I'll not collect them, I'll turn them over to the Treasury. Uh, and that will be a hefty amount. Uh, uh, second, uh, I'm talking about a moral issue. So I agree with the figures, Dantali. Uh, all the things I talk about together will not eliminate the deficit. They just cut it by half or something. But what the the question I'm raising is, take a very simple and only one item, so we move on to your question. Uh, Is it morally acceptable to spend 2.3 billion peanuts so we can have different forms or use those 2.3 billions to buy, I don't know, 52 people bone marrow transplants? And I'm saying morally, if I have that choice, I, I say, I rather have everybody using the same form. The, the profits will not be diminished; on the contrary, they'll be increased. And so, uh, as to we cannot define administrative paper well. Uh, anybody who ever had contact with an overhead, uh, and, uh, which most of us do, knows very quickly. So, but I want to remind: I'm saying it's morally wrong, not to take out whatever piece we can take. Eliminating crime abuse, I never suggested. I just said we could make a dent into it. It's morally wrong not to do that before we take away from anybody's kidney dialysis. As to your question,
2: I did before you, why are we put to such a choice? Uh,
1: because we read your article. Uh, in your article, you said the only problem is that the government is interfering there. And I'm saying we are facing now the fact we're going to keep allocating federal dollars in health care. It's not going away. We may or may not put a cap on it. I hope we do. I hope we bring it down. Oh, you're not. But meanwhile, we face the question, what principle are we going to employ in deciding what gets funded and what's not? Because we're not going to fund everything. And I'm saying the first thing in line to cut are those things which cause harm, of which there are plenty. The second thing in line to cut, those are useless. Then we get to things which are beneficial. Now, to the question of it twice as more, I think the deficit is immoral. And therefore, we should cut it. I'm sorry, I I must, I guess, for one second. You know the famous story about Bernard Shaw asking the woman, you know, are you gonna sleep with me for a million dollars? And she said, I'll consider it. Then he said, for five dollars? She said, who do you think I am? But we already established the deficit is immoral. We just are asking how to cut it. So uh, it don't lay on me, the deficit. I just think there's a better way of cutting it Uh, 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 than allowing the health care industry unlimited profit and shenanigans which limit competition and uh, instead beat up on people who die in the parking lot because the insurance will run out. All right,
0: Roger, I have a question for you. Amitai is talking about these moral aspects, and I don't think you have directly addressed that. Is it immoral for our government to let someone go without needed health care?
2: Again, I would start by asking why is it that the question even arises that the government has the power to let someone go without uh, needed health care? If we didn't have this flow of money from private individuals to the government— such that the government would thereby have the power to make these life or death decisions, we wouldn't be faced with this. Now I admit, we do have that today, and so we have to face this question, and the assumption seems to be that we can turn this over to a body here in Washington that can make these life or death decisions perhaps on a general level. I mean, that's what was being talked about back during the last election with the so-called death boards. And it turns out some of these boards are being constituted right now in Washington as we gather. But, uh, the, uh, the, the, as I said, the, the prior question is why are we in a state of affairs where, where this is the, the case? Were we not in this state of affairs people would have a lot more money in their pockets and they could voluntarily do what people have always done voluntarily, namely give to the kinds of charities that provide kidney transplants for poor people or life-saving measures of that kind. Uh, There's nothing uh, in a free society that would prohibit that from taking place unless you have a society in which so much of the discretionary wealth flows to a central government, which then has to make those decisions.
0: Yes, ma'am.
4: you want me to speak under a microphone?
0: Yes, you've got it right there in front of you.
4: Oh, thank you. Hi. I'm thrilled to be here today. Um, It happened that I met this young woman at Starbucks and um, I'm here for um, preparation to call on Congress on Wednesday for an incurable disease I have. Um, I don't understand. Uh, I, I, I'm a gerontologist, and um, I, I, I get the same feeling from both of you, but uh, what I don't understand is why are we not talking about getting fraud out in the medical system? Now, I'm going to get a laugh from everybody because I live in Florida. And um, I cannot tell you about the fraud in the medical system in Florida. It is alive and doing very, very well. Um and we know the four states that give high value care. We also know the people that know how to run the system and we're not using it. Why are we not getting the fraud out of the medical system? And even in the state of Florida.
0: Okay, is, we know, is that the question? Well, we got? No. We, no, I have I, I, all I right, have let's.
4: Okay, on the back of the Medicare, Uh, you have a fraud number. Okay, I have called that fraud number. Okay, I have reported fraud. I can also report it to Tallahassee. I can also report it to D.C. Now, the second time I reported fraud. Okay,
0: okay. we we, we really do need to get a question, and let me point out that neither of our speakers, let me point out that neither of our speakers is an expert in the administration of the medical system, so I don't think a more detailed question about why can't we get the fraud out is going to get a useful answer from two philosophers.
4: But they want the same thing. They want high-value care. Yes. I, want, I go to the Mayo Clinic. I get high-value care, and I pay less at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville or Rochester than I do in St. Petersburg, Florida. And St. Petersburg, Florida gets more from Medicare Than they get, than Mayo gets in Jacksonville or Rochester. Okay, thank thank you. The complaint is
2: that this government program is rife with fraud and abuse, and so the solution is to have an even bigger government program. Frankly, that doesn't work. The reason you have so much fraud and abuse is because there is not an incentive structure sufficient to prevent that fraud and abuse. And this is invariably the case in government programs, and it has been the case in government programs from the time that Mayor Curley ruled Boston, or Boss Tweed ruled New York, and on and on and on. If you want to reduce fraud and abuse, turn it over to the private sector where they have incentives to reduce fraud and abuse because by doing so, they get to profit. I know I've introduced that dirty old word, profit, but that is the secret to reducing fraud and abuse. You won't get rid of it completely, but you will do a far better job with private policing than you do with public policing.
1: I want to take exception to your notion I'm not an expert on health. Uh, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I served as the staff director of a commission of uh, the state of New York which investigated abuses in nursing homes. And uh, I strongly advise you to read our report because the same abuses you'll find in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal this week. Uh, basically what happened is the nursing home industry will not let make the basic corrections. Uh, which called for, and actually I got Roger's point, if there would be no public expenditures on nursing homes, the nursing home owners could not build and corrupt the government expenditures, it's true. But as long as it exists, even if you cut by half, uh, the question is, what do we need to be sure that, for example, uh, the the nursing home owners uh, charge to overhead Chagall and Picasso's they bought for their home, the nursing home owners uh, collect uh, fees when you sign in, above and beyond your monthly fee, kind of a check in fee. Uh, they then be interested in getting people to pass away more quickly. So once the people, parents signed or family signed, no uh, DNR, uh, no resuscitation, they put them on the porch document by the state of New York. They got pneumonia. They said, we cannot interfere because they, don't, they signed DNR, and they got new people to put into the beds. When they were caught uh, spending funds inappropriately, uh, there was an argument if they should be get a 6% penalty or not, and the Congress decided that you couldn't burden them with uh, penalties. When a nursing home in Texas put in as required uh, uh, fire alarms and smoke alarms, because one of the most common problems for old people is when they smoke, uh, their lungs cannot process and they die. They didn't connect it. Uh, and when that became a court case, they said that's private property. Anyway, I, I, I can sit here as long uh, and uh, stop right now. There is a lot of fraud and abuse. It cannot be eliminated. Uh, and we, I agree completely. If there would be no federal money, you couldn't corrupt it. Uh, but we are going to continue spending hundreds and hundreds of billions. So that, for now, by any program anybody discusses, and therefore the question is, how do we prevent people who make profit much easier by correcting the system than by providing from good service from doing that? All right, let's take
0: a question here on the aisle and then in the back on the aisle. You can go ahead and take a mic up to the back and be ready.
5: Good afternoon, uh, Michael Willie, recent graduate, Georgetown Public Policy Institute. Um, the United States federal government has been described as a heavily armed insurance company with a vast majority of the budget being dedicated to social programs in the military. But we also spend a lot on education. Since 1965, we spent over a trillion dollars without any significant increases in graduation rates or test scores. Um, and President Obama in the last two years has increased the size of the Department of Education, actually doubling it in the stimulus bill and also spending another $10 billion last August to bail out the states. Um, and at the same time opposed a highly effective D.C. voucher bill here in the city. Shouldn't we talk about, um, returning education to its proper constitutional role at the state and local government before we talk about increasing the amount of money we spend on education here at the federal level?
1: Now I reached the limit of the little I know. Uh, not, nothing uh, about the education system. But I will point out that most of the federal dollars, are, it's just a transfer pipeline. They're really spent by the state uh, and local uh, communities. It's not that the Department of Education, which Republicans several times wanted to close and none of them dare do, uh, actually spend the money. It's just a pipeline. Uh, but b- beyond that, uh, w- what? if you would be better off by closing down public education, I invite you to look at for-profit-making colleges to get an insight what that world would be like uh, as compared to the not-for-profit liberal arts.
2: Uh, I'm all in favor of returning education to the state and local level, but even more to the private level and to the separation of school and state. Why we think that we should turn our children over to the state for an education or indoctrination, as the case may be, is beyond me. Uh, if you want to have efficient education, get parents involved in small school situations, ideally private school situations, and for those parents who cannot afford them, we can always provide education stamps like we provide school stamps or rent stamps to um, make up the difference. But here, as in so many other areas, what we have done is turn to government as the first, instant, as the first um, um, solution rather than the last solution. Uh, so, too, we're doing it in health care. Uh, so, too, uh, in so many other areas, um, the private sector can handle so much more efficiently and with so uh, much less corruption and abuse. Uh, all the goods and services that today are provided through the public sector with all the perils that go with them.
1: Wait a you want to give them energy stamps and education stamps for the poor people can't afford? I thought it's has to be done from the goodness of our heart.
2: I would would do exactly that from the goodness of our heart unless there were nothing left. And I dare say you would find charities. Already you find charities right here in the District of Columbia. Private charities are providing the um, vouchers for uh, a, a large number of students um, nothing, nowhere near as many as want them, to go to, uh, to uh, either charter schools or to private schools. So you, And this is uh, notwithstanding the massive taxation that we have. Right in the back.
5: Thank you very much. My name is Ken Dante, not affiliated. I uh, just wanted to ask a question to the two social philosophers. It's just a question basically about suffering when suffering rises to a very high level, and I, and I think recently some of the ghosts of the depression have even kind of floated through town at times with the fear of that. When suffering rises to a certain level, doesn't it affect our people? Doesn't it affect our children? And we may be within some philosophical belief to be able to throw certain people overboard, but what is the effect of that on ourselves as people, as ourselves who believe ourselves to be a good people. I mean, that's part of the American story or the American myth. It's always a question. What is the effect of too much suffering on our people if we don't do some kind of intervention?
2: Well, it's hard to answer that in the abstract uh, because the question is so abstract. Um, if you mean something like the suffering that took place during the Depression, let's remember that the Depression was government caused the declension of the money supply by one-third cannot but create uh, the kind of uh, deflation and uh, market collapse that we saw, together with the Smoot-Hawley tariffs. And between the two of them, they pretty much explain, uh, uh, and when you throw in, of course, then the efforts, of the Keynesian efforts of FDR, that, that only perpetuated it. And so, um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of suffering that follows from that kind of... Uh, government um, shenanigans Uh, and so um, um, it does affect people to be sure but that doesn't mean that therefore we have to turn to more government solutions by way of correcting those problems because that's a you know a vicious cycle you just Get, get government creates the problem, then you need more government to correct the problem, which creates the new problems, which you need more government. To, and it's a vicious cycle, downward cycle. And, uh, you know, eventually you have to get out of that, as New Zealand did recently, as Canada seems to be doing right now, and as even some countries in Europe are doing right now. So we do have models around the world of people who are recognizing the handwriting on the wall and saying, look at. The only way we're gonna get out of this is through private initiative, not through more government programs. And then you will find a happier population.
1: I, I, I like your question. Uh, I, I, you troubled trouble me by one sub-clause where you wanted to throw people overboard. Let, let's just walk around that one. That one leaves me a little uncomfortable. But uh, as a Jewish refugee from Germany, kind of, I don't, I don't like that. But uh, as a... Um, uh, as to suffering, we, I think we don't have to go back to the big depression. We just can go back a year or two where millions of people, uh, their, their homes were foreclosed and they lost their retirement nest eggs and their savings and they lost their jobs. Uh, that this, we don't have to go very far to find sufficient suffering. And I, I very much agree. I think we should, we should do a study and find out was that suffering created by the government? or by a financial institution, or by odd combinations between them was it due to regulatory capture where the cooks cooked the government. Uh, so it's a wonderful case study. And I urge you all to do that. Uh, not a priori, assuming from some theory that we know the answer.
0: All right. Let's take one last question right here. I guess I would like to know from the professor, just from a moral and ethical framework, what is my fair share of what somebody else produces? I'll tell you. And, and, sure. and if, it's, if it's because, if you're, if if you're going to answer that, well, because that's democracy and that's what we have, I would just like to remind you that many things are legal but unethical. Slavery, apartheid, Nazism. So what is my fair share of what Bill Gates produces?
1: I guess a professor doesn't. That, oh, that means you. Ah, oh, okay. Mean, uh, uh, all right. he's I gave
2: on. the answer already. Zero. But uh,
1: well, he has a succinct answer, and he's a professor too. But, never, but uh, the libertarian illusion you have that it's you who are producing it—that uh, you were born Monday morning, you know. And no help from anybody? No, no reason- not help. No, sir. I it's my, it, it's my turn, relax. And then, if you <laughs> uh, you know, free speech is still part of the libertarian. Okay. So Anyhow, so let me help you. You answer me a question, I'm trying to give you an answer. Uh, let's sort out who helped you to get your share. And then ask the question, do we owe anything back to all these people who invested in you? So if you're a doctor, let's say, uh, the, f- the public invested in you, even if you paid full tuition, seventy-five thousand dollars a year to make you uh, a doctor. The public invested in that building in which you practice, known as the hospital, and such. Now you pay all these people back your share. Uh, I'll let you have the rest. Now no, 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 there's one more thing: there are consequences costs for the other people. You pollute the other lot. Even by libertarian theory, you you you, you can't go and impinge costs on. Uh, other people, externality. You take care of what we invested in you, pay off your externality, the rest is yours.
2: Amite. Okay. Th- yeah, the problem there is that you know, we have contracts by which we can answer these questions ex-ante. We don't have to ex do it ex-post.
1: Uh, I like that.
2: Oh, well, that's a little Latin there. I threw out a little Latin for you there. So we don't have to do it ex post. That's what contracts are for. So the person that helped uh, uh, Bill Gates uh, b- by being employed by him knows what he's entitled to, exactly what they agreed to up front by way of commission or, or, uh, or uh, uh, income, as salary as the case may be. You know, that's why you have contracts.
0: Okay, I want to thank Roger Pilon and Amitai Etzioni for being here. The articles by each of them that generated this debate are available out there, as is uh, wine and cheese, so please join us for further discussion.